All right, well, once again, Mercy Fellowship, good morning. Hope you're doing well. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Curtis. I uh, serve as an elder in training here at the church and, and do a few other things as well. So uh, honored to be here and honored to be preaching this morning. And uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up, go there. If not, uh, we will have it on the screen for you. And I just want to let you know, by way of reminder, we had communicated from this stage as well as via email and social media that this Sunday was going to be Vision Sunday for our church. And it's really important to be for Vision Sunday. We're going to punt that for next week. Uh, but it's really important for, to be here for those, for the reason of uh, Pastor Chris will get up and he's going to remind us of who we are as Mercy Fellowship, but then also give us vision for what the year to come is going to look like and what we hope to accomplish. Uh, that being said, Pastor Chris is sick, along with a few other staff members as well. And so we are moving that to next week, Lord willing. And let me encourage you with this, church. Uh, this is not something we had planned, not something that we foresaw, but it is most certainly something that God foreknew, right? And because God foreknew it, we're going to step into this space that's unknown by faith, believing that God has a word for us today. I'm reminded of what Jesus says in, in John's gospel. He says, hey, uh, if you are my disciple, you're not only going to abide in me, but you're going to abide in my word. And so, hey, whenever we open God's word on Sunday morning, we are declaring that we're disciples of Jesus, seeking to learn about who he is and what he's done for us, and by way of knowing him then, how we would live differently in light of him. And so that's what we got planned this morning, and, and here's what we're talking about. Here's the big idea for today. We're talking about Jesus makes all things new. Uh, Chris made this title, and he made it, cut it short. I don't know why he did that, but the title today is Jesus makes all things new. And the big idea behind that is this. We live in a broken world. Goes without saying, right? We live in a broken world. The question and the issue rises up then of how we got to a place of being a broken world and the different views of that. And we believe as Christians, we have a broken world due to sin, due to man's nature of not submitting to God and not wanting God. We are by nature, due to sin, in rebellion against God. We don't want him. And what God does is this, in his great grace and his great love and his great mercy towards you and me, he doesn't tell us, hey, get your act together. He doesn't say, hey, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get going. No, and in God's great loving, tender kindness towards us, he comes down into human history. He enters into our story. I'm reminded of a, a story that Timothy Keller, the pastor in New York, shared uh, it was a story of a, a, a gal who was walking the streets late at night in New York, and she ended up getting mugged. And as she was getting mugged and she's crying out for help, some of the apartment lights on the street where she was at, they turned on. So the mugger, he just ran off. But when he saw that no one came down, he came back to her, finished uh, abusing her, got what he wanted, and then left. And I think that's such an important story, because here's the reality for us. Uh, our God hears our cries. Our God hears our sorrows. And our God wasn't apathetic, but our God actually came down to meet us. Uh, he, he came down into, into the sin, into the, the turmoil, into all of the issues that we face. And Jesus comes down and takes that which is broken by sin, claims it as his own, and seeks to make it new. So Jesus, in fact, does make all things new. And so this morning, church, here's where I want to go. 
I don't believe that the way the world has changed and word changes by good preaching, although I believe good preaching is important, otherwise I wouldn't be up here, right? I don't believe that the world's changed merely or solely by churches being planted, although I believe in that mission that we've get, been given from God. I truly believe that people are changed when they have an encounter with God. Uh, when the Holy Spirit takes a grip of a person and convicts them of sin and challenges them to grow towards Christ's likeness, then and only then do I believe that things change. And so we started off with verse uh, for our call to worship in Luke chapter 1, verse 37. It says, nothing is impossible with God. And what we're going to do today in Mark's gospel, we're going to look at four different miracles. They're all tied together. We're going to read a ton of scripture, more than we usually do. But all these stories are tied together, and there's a, a constant theme that runs throughout all four of these stories, and it's this. There's an impossible situation that is hopeless to man, and Jesus shows up, and Jesus intervenes. And a situation that was hopeless now has hope, and something that was broken is now restored. And that's what Jesus does. He does it in our lives, and he does it in the story here that we're going to look. So if you have your Bibles, Mark 4. Starting in verse 35, like I said, if you don't have it, it's on the screen. We'll read the first story, we'll break it down, and then we'll continue on from there. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, with him, uh, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling but he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. Jesus is having a good sleep, right? That's what that means right there. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? All right, just some context so you know where we're at in Mark's gospel. And let me say this too. The gospels, they are written for a specific purpose. Okay, so it is a historical account from these guys that have written the gospels. But more importantly than that, they're tailoring their accounts of Jesus' life for a purpose, for a specific point. And Mark has a lot of themes in his gospel, but one of them primarily is this, the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God like? In chapters 1 through 3 in Mark, uh, 1, 2, and 3 in Mark's gospel, Jesus is talking about what the kingdom of God is like. He is, in fact, preaching about the kingdom. So if you have preaching in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the following chapters, chapters 4 through 8, are about the power of the kingdom of God. So Jesus goes on to say, not only what is the kingdom of God like, but he goes on to demonstrate what it is, all right? It's the blind that are getting their sight back. It's the lame that are walking. It's the dead that are rising. All that's been destroyed and ruined by sin is being restored and made new. That's the kingdom of God. And we see in this story specifically, the apostles uh, follow by Jesus' command to get in the boat and go to the other side of the sea. Isn't that an interesting point? This is Jesus telling them, hey, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. And, that, and then they end up in a storm. And I think that's interesting for this reason. Oftentimes, for you and for me, when we're in storms of life and things aren't going well, we often think 
It's due to us not following God. That's why we're in a storm. The reality is from this story, it shows us that, hey, you might be smack dab in the will of God for your life and still be in a storm. It's not because you have somehow sinned. Now, that's a possibility, definitely a possibility. It takes a lot of wisdom and counsel, I'd say, to understand that and unpack that. But man, you might be right in the middle of a storm, and it's exactly where God wants you. But they're in the Sea of Galilee, and this sea, some scholars think, it's about 700 to 900 feet below sea level. And the way it's shaped, it's shaped like a bowl, and it's got mountains that surround it. And what happens is that wind will roar through the valleys of the mountains, and it'll come into that sea, and it'll stir it up to where there's sudden windstorms that break out. As the windstorm's breaking out, the apostles, they're freaking out. Jesus is asleep. Water's entering the boat, and they will be overboard in no time. And this is the part of the story, church, where you and me enter ourselves into the story, where we don't merely just look at it as spectators, but we actually invite ourselves into the story. Uh, I feel convicted of this when I've been reading my Bible as of late, where I look at the Bible and I say, oh, it's a different time. Oh, they're going through different situations. And C.S. Lewis would call this chronological snobbery, where you look at people in the past and you say, oh, yeah, they were different, but we're, we're more advanced now in our time. And that's not the case. These apostles, church, they're just like you and me. Just like you and me. Uh, they think the same way as you and me. They process things the same way as you and me. And so you have Jesus, who's performed a few magic tricks at this point, and he's asleep. You've got the apostles who are professional fishermen, and they're freaking out. So you're in the boat. What's your emotion? What's going through your mind? Fear? Fear? Okay, I would give you that. Fear is a real emotion we've all felt in the last couple of years. Let's be more specific, though. Fear of what? Fear of death? Maybe a fear that God actually really doesn't uh, care about me or care about my situation? The apostles, what they do is they actually rebuke Jesus here. They get in trouble for it later, but they rebuke Jesus. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I'll tell you what, church, from the story, at least it seems, um, it seems clear to me, chaos is a great revealer of what we actually believe to be true. Uh, when we lose our job, when we lose a relationship, when things don't go as planned, when death is creeping at the door, what we actually believe boils to the surface what we see in this story here. They accuse Jesus of not caring. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus, he wakes from his sleep. He calms the sea to where it says there is a great calm. And my thought with that when it says a great calm is that you know when uh, you've been in situations where the silence speaks louder than words, right? I think it's something along those lines where there's this great chaos and great storm and yet Jesus calms it and then everything is silent. And it freaks them out. And I'm amazed by this, church. Jesus, he confronts them, and he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Uh, you look at other translations, it's not so much that they don't have faith. Jesus is kind of saying, you do have faith. Where is it? Where is your faith in me in the storms? I think this is significant. You would think from this story, right, you would think that after this storm has subsided, after Jesus has calmed it, I think you would go ahead and say, hey, thanks, Jesus. Thanks for doing that. Really appreciate it. 
Perhaps the fishermen, they're good businessmen, and they say, hey, Jesus, let's take this on the road. We could do some really cool things. You know, Jesus could be uh, jet skiing without a boat. It'd be just fine, you know. Let's see what we can do with this. No. Do you know what the apostles' reaction is? It says they were filled with great fear. They went from being afraid of the waves and the sea to all of a sudden being really afraid of who Jesus is. And the reason they're afraid of Jesus is this. They actually don't know who Jesus is. You start hanging out with someone for a little while, and then they pull a left turn on you, and you're like, who am I hanging out with? What's going on right now? They are reevaluating who Jesus is in their minds in light of what had just happened. And this is why I believe they have great fear. Scholars say that, that young Jewish boys would grow up going to school, and when they were going to school, most likely they would have learned this. God alone is the one who not only causes storms, but calms them. And so when they're hanging out with Jesus and Jesus does this, this just blows their mind. They have fear because they actually don't know who Jesus is. And Jesus ends up rebuking them, saying, hey, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be having fear in this situation. Now, this is interesting. I'm not saying, church, that if you have fear, you don't know God. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is this. When you have fear, how do you react? Uh, when you have fear, do you go to God in faith as a place of refuge, or do you run elsewhere to find security in something else? I'll confess to you, when fear and anxiety starts to swell up, I just try to numb myself, and so I'll get on my phone, and I just kind of scroll on social media, and it's like, okay, yeah, everything's okay, everything's okay, but it never actually deals with the problem, right? It never solves anything. It actually gets to the root and so here's what we're going to do, church. This question at the end that the apostles ask is not a rhetorical one. They ask, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And Mark, brilliantly in this gospel, he's going to show us with three other stories all in the next chapter what, who Jesus is. And Jesus does this, and you need to know this. Jesus, when he does miracles, it's not just a random miracle. Jesus is very specific. If you want to know who our God is, our God is a very specific and intentional God. He, um, he does miracles for a reason, two, two reasons. First off, he does miracles to show us that he is, in fact, God. But he doesn't stop there. He shows us that he's God, but then he also shows us, the second point I would point out, is that he shows us something very specific about his nature and his character through miracles. And so we don't do this often, church. If you're new or you haven't been to our church before, we usually go verse by verse very slowly. We're going to read all of chapter 5. It's a lot of verses. But sometimes it's good to see overall uh, big themes and chunks of Scripture, and I think it'll be profitable for you today. So we're going to read, go ahead and read all of chapter 5 here. Bunker down, pay attention, and we'll get through it. Verse five, chapter 5, verse 1. Then he came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been often bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. 
And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, Well, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out to the country. Now a, great of, uh, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and with an unclean spirit, he came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed in the, his right mind. And they were afraid. And those, who, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region as he was getting into the boat. And the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. We'll go ahead and break it up in chunks, church. I think it'll be more profitable for us to do so. And we see in this first section here, Jesus has power over the demonic. Uh, Jesus, in chapter 4, he had power over the natural world. We see in this story, Jesus has power over the supernatural wor world, right? There's a man here who's demon-possessed, the story tells us. This man, he had been bound by chains in the cemetery. You can't think of a better Halloween story than possibly that one. Uh, he's bound in chains, demon-possessed. He breaks the chains, cuts his body with clay, and cries out day and night. This man's in tormenting pain. The situation for not only him, but for the people in the city, it is one that is completely hopeless. There is no hope for this man. A man has tried everything to subdue him, to control him, to help him. It hasn't worked. But God shows up. But God shows up and God frees this man from his demonic possession. And he says that he's sitting in his right mind and people are afraid. People are terrified. There's so much, church, that we could glean from this story and other ones that we're going to look at, but briefly, so we stay on track, if we could learn one thing, I think it's this. Uh, no one is too far gone for Jesus to save. No one is too far gone for Jesus to save. I think of friends that I have who have been using heroin for upwards of 12 plus years. They're not too far from Jesus to save. I think of some of you that I know in the situations you have where perhaps there's family members you've prayed for they don't know Jesus. There's people in your life you love and they don't know Jesus. Uh, they are not too far gone from Jesus being able to save. What is impossible with man is possible with God. That's what we see, not only what we read in the very beginning of our service today, but we see in this story as well. I'm reminded of a, a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers. Uh, and he got his first preaching gig in the 1900s in Wales, in a really broken down, uh, just kind of working class town. And uh, he'd go out to the streets and he'd share the gospel with people. 
And when people would come to know Jesus, these homeless people or these hard labor workers, what they would do is that they'd give Martin Lloyd-Jones their bottle of liquor as a sign of faith that, hey, the old me is gone, a new me has come. So much so, this happened overtly, not overtly, it happened over and over again to where they even had a, the basement of the church start filling up with liquor because of how many people came to know Jesus. Church, there's no one too far from Jesus to save. Jesus has power over the supernatural. Uh, we continue on though, church. Let's read the rest of it and then we can break down the other stories. Verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under the hand of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd, and he said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around and seen who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth, and he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Hey, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he said, Put them all outside. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talithai kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement, and strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Whoo, that's a lot of scripture to read. Yeah, typically we don't do that, but I think it's really important for at least what we're covering today. We read about... Jesus having power over the natural world in Mark 4. We read about Jesus having power over the supernatural world in the beginning of Mark 5. And we see this story of this woman who's had the discharge of blood for, for 12 years. She suffered much, it says, under the hands of physicians. She has no money. Her situation has not gotten better, but has gotten worse. It is, by all accounts, hopeless. It is, by all accounts, impossible for her to be better, to be clean. And her situation is actually, it's twofold. It's not just that she is physically not well, but ceremonially speaking, as far as Judaism goes, she is considered unclean. Uh, this is how it would have broken down. In, um, 
In the book of Leviticus, it had rules for people that had uh, open wounds or it had rules for people that had discharges of blood, and you had a quarantine from the rest of the group for about seven days. Once you were clean of that and cleared of that, you would come back to the group, you would have a sacrifice made for you so that you'd be clean before God, and then you could go about your day. And you say, yeah, you know, that's great, that's good, but what happens to people like this gal who hasn't been clean for 12 years? Well, the reality for her is this, that she wouldn't even be able to enter into the temple of God where the presence of God dwells. She would not be able to be there. In fact, it goes worse for that, not just the the level of shame from that, but the level of shame to where in, in culture they said, hey, if you're unclean and you're not getting better, you can still walk around, but you just have to announce it publicly to people that you're unclean so that people would step back a couple feet from you. Her situation's hopeless. Her situation, it's not getting better, but worse. And Jesus shows up. And she says, if I touch even the the garment of him, I will be made well. Church, what faith is that? What faith is that? Man, for us as a church, as us as a people of God to say, man, if I could just have a little bit of Christ, if I could just have an encounter with God, that'd be better than anything that this world could possibly give me. Man, what faith that she shows us. If I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And she's a great example of faith for us because what happens? Well, her impurity is completely reversed. It's taken from her. You see how the kingdom of God is working. You see how the kingdom of God is reversing. You see how the kingdom of God is taking all that which is broken and destroyed by sin and restoring it and making it new. This is what Jesus does. Nothing was working, and yet Jesus uh, cleaned her and made her whole. It reminds me of this, church. This is exactly what Jesus does for you and for me. You and me who are covered in sin. You and me who are covered in impurities. You and me who fall short of God's uh, good standard daily. John writes this in, in uh, 1 John. He says, 1 John 1, 9, If anyone confesses their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This morning, church, do you know that you're clean? I think this is an important point. The word save in the Bible, I think if you've been in church uh, longer than most people, or you've been in church most of your life, that word save just kind of gets thrown around. You're like, yeah, I know what save means, or yeah, I understand the idea of save. But it's really a beautiful word, and it's more than that we give it credit for. Uh, The word save can also be translated heal which I think is really beneficial, because here's, I think, where it really benefits us. If I was to come to you and I'd say, hey, brother or sister, do you know that Jesus can save you? And you would say, yeah, yeah, I know that. Save you from your sins. Sure, I know that. Hey, brother or sister, do you know that Jesus can heal you from your sins? That adds an extra level of what Jesus can, does, and will do for the believer. He heals you. And then finally, church, the last story we see is of Jesus going to this 12-year-old daughter of Jairus, right? Jairus is a ruler of a synagogue. Um, says he comes to Jesus. He's begging her. They've tried to, get, to heal her, tried to make her well. Nothing has worked. Nothing has changed. And Jesus shows up. And Jesus gets stopped by that woman. He gets stopped by the woman, makes her well, and then he goes on his way. And they said, hey, don't bother Jesus. She's dead. 
right? Yeah, Jesus, you could heal people. Yeah, Jesus, you could restore the blind. Yeah, Jesus, you could help the paralyzed walk. But death, death is too big for you. Death is out of your wheel well. You cannot help with this. And what does Jesus do? He says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laugh at her. This is a really important point right here. The, the New Testament writers are smart. They're smart people. When they write in their epistles, whether it's Paul or Peter or the, uh, the gospel writers, they always write of Christians when they die, it says, and they fell asleep. And that is to say, Christians when they die, when they fall asleep, is to imply that they're going to rise again. I think that's such hope, church. People that you love that have passed in Christ, that you'll see them again one day. Uh, the people, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that the dead in Christ will rise first. I've shared it before. I'll share it again, though. You know, my dad died of a heart attack when I was 12. Very suddenly. It was a matter of just a couple hours where it's like, all right, well, he's dead and our lives are just forever changed. Uh, I long for the day that I get to see him. And what hope that we have in the gospel, right? That which death has taken, Jesus takes back and claims is mine. I praise God for that. I hope you do as well. All right, church, we read a lot, though. Let's thread the needle, okay? Let's thread the needle for all these stories of Jesus revealing himself to us for the purpose that we might be his true disciples. The apostles, what did they ask? Well, they asked Jesus this. He said, hey, hey, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Well, this is Jesus. Jesus, he has power over the natural world. This is Jesus who has power over the supernatural world. Uh, this is Jesus who can reverse your impurities and reverse your sin. And this is Jesus who even reverses death itself. And this morning, church, Jesus Christ the risen, living king sitting on his throne. He looks at you, the individual, and he says to you, where's your faith? Why are you so afraid? Well, I'm scared of the unknown. I'm scared of the unknown. Well, well Jesus, he's in control of it. He controls the natural. He controls the supernatural. Well, oh God, I'm too unclean. I'm not worthy to come before you or to see you. Well, Jesus can reverse it and make you clean. Well, I fear death. I don't want to die. Well, Jesus is even the one who reverses death. Church, this is the kingdom of God. This is the, the, this is the beauty that we have of being part, of establishing the kingdom of God now, of calling people to trust in Christ, to repent of their sins, because there's something greater out there than what we have right here and right now. And church, if we think about horrible situations, impossible situations. We can't go any further than the cross of Jesus. The worst situation of all is Jesus, the Son of God, dying on the cross. What happened? Well, God is dead. Satan and sin have won. There's no chance of goodness and life prevailing. And what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus resurrects from the grave on the third day. And so what does that mean for us then, church? In light of the resurrection, if the resurrection is true, then that means whatever we might face won't last. It means that all that is wrong is going to be made right in the last day. It means all that is sad is going to come untrue. And all that is lost is going to be restored. 
This is the kingdom of God, church. So where are we going? Where does the church, where does the people of God go? Well, let's go ahead and read it. Revelation 21, if you don't, uh, verses 1 through 6. I don't know if it'll be on the screen or not. I'll go ahead and just read it for us, though, as it closes out. John writes this in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and he will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to John, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Uh, Church, I don't know where you're at in life. I know some of you, and I know where some of you are at in life, but I don't know all of you, and I don't know where all of you are at in life. Uh, But around this time of year, right, with the new year, we long for the new year. It kind of is a clean slate to us almost. And, And what I'm telling you is this. Jesus has not just given you a new year. He's given you a new world. And so all I can do this morning, church, is simply tell you to repent and trust in Jesus. That if there's anything that will be best for your life and best for this world and best for your generations and your legacy it is to trust in Jesus. And if you trust in Jesus, trust in him all the more because he is so worthy of it. Let's pray.